dirt road in a gooseneck saddle up with me dry land in god's country crops far as i can see headlights on both ends of my day this country Welcome, folks, to HPJ Talk, the podcast from High Plains Journal, bringing the ag news and commentary of the week to you. I'm Jennifer Latsky, and I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, Kayleen Scott. Hey, Kayleen. Hey, Jenny. In this week's episode, we're going to bring you the stories you might have missed in the January 11th print edition, and Jenny will chat with U.S. Wheat Associates Vice President of Communications, Steve Mercer, about the organization's short documentary, Wholesome, that was debuted this week online. Kayleen, we're just a week away from Soil Health U, which will be online uh, January 21st. Remember, folks, if you haven't done so already, go register at SoilHealthU.net. We'll have our three keynote speakers, Jimmy Emmons, Regional Coordinator for the Southern Plains Region, FPAC, Chris Nichols, Soil Microbiologist and Founder of Chris Systems Education and Consultation, and Rick Clark, Farmer and Owner of Farm Green. It is going to be a packed morning, chock full of wisdom to help you get to the root of it. Soil Health U is brought to you by High Plains Journal, Prairie Food, and Exapta Solutions Incorporated. Remember, register today at SoilHealthU.net and look for the code in this week's High Plains Journal print edition for free registration. Well, Kayleen, it is that time of year when we should all be going to meetings and chatting up people in the hallways and having bad hotel coffee and and such, or for you, ice cold Mountain Dew, if you can find it. And not pay $12 for it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but as we know, COVID-19 precautions had everybody kind of scrambling to change some things up. And American Farm Bureau Federation, for the first time in its history, chose to move its convention that usually has about 6,000, 8,000 people uh, from all corners of the nation, they moved online. And uh, this is an important convention because it is one of those organizations that represents farmers from the grassroots level. We also have uh, National Farmers Union and a few other organizations that are like that, folks. But Farm Bureau Federation, uh, they really focus on policy development at this meeting every year. Well, they, they needed to make sure that they had it so they could have their marching orders as they start lobbying uh, the 117th Congress when it, um, when it comes back. And uh, it, was a, it was an interesting change of tone from the last four years, Kayleen. Um, Farm Bureau President Zippy Duval made a point to acknowledge that there will be a President Biden administration, and they are now working to build relationships with the transition team and the incoming staff and advisors. Um, they talked about there's gonna be a, a lot of changes for farm country, but just that alone, just the fact alone that the Zippy um, acknowledged that there's going to be a Biden administration, I think that probably um, probably woke up some of his, their members just a little bit. Yeah, I bet it did. <laughs> yeah, considering what has happened in the last month or 
week or whatever the time frame is right now because holy buggers. But um, so some of the things that Farm Bureau started talking about that are going to be hot topics in the coming year. First off, COVID-19. You know, we've got to figure out the, re- the economic recovery from COVID-19, Kayleen. And farmers raise food, fiber, and fuel for the nation, right? Well, you can raise it, but people have to have money to buy it. They have to be able to go out to eat. They have to be able to go into clothing stores and and purchase clothing. You know, there's, you can produce the product, but you got to have a way to get it to market. And uh, food service recovery, the economic recovery, those may, a lot of farmers may think that those don't really affect them at at the farm level, Kayleen, but boy, howdy, it's, if it's going to really affect some prices, um, you know, you've, you and I were talking just earlier, just being able to go out to eat, you know, have you, I mean, we go out to eat and we don't, we don't think anything of it, but you know, the places we've, we've been to dine in, there's not as many people as there used to be. And it's hard to imagine how full some of these places used to be. Right. Uh, you know, the, the fella and I, we try to go out at least once a week to a place, um, to around town just to support our, our friends that we like to dine at, you know, um, we want to make sure that they're there after we have, uh, you know, whatever, whatever the, the signal is that we can go back to normal. I don't know if there's going to be like a big boom or if there's a cannon that goes off that says, Hey, everything's okay. (laughs) Or the governor comes on the television. <laughs> yeah, something, whatever, whatever the flag is that you guys tell me that it's all okay. Just, just be sure to, you know, send me the memo. Um, so anyway, that's going to be on the minds of Farm Bureau as they go into the coming year. Some more stuff. They are talking about climate change at the American Farm Bureau. And uh, they have chosen to create two program or two organizations that are coalitions with maybe some folks that aren't exactly farm friendly. However, it's best to have a seat at the table rather than being served on the table for dessert. And farmers, as we know, they are incredibly good stewards of the land. And they're already doing so many things that are good for climate change, that are good for the environment, but they just haven't been able to market them as you know, with the metrics and they haven't been able to get the credit for them. And so Farm Bureau is is hoping that in the next coming year or so, they can be part of the conversation. You know, Kayleen, you and, and Spence, you do such good work on your grassland that you have for your, for your cattle. And there's some things that you do that, you know, voluntarily, you could possibly potentially get paid for them in the next coming year or so. That'd be handy. <laughs> well, I don't, the, the whole climate change thing is something that just, I have mixed feelings about because I know how farmers and ranchers treat their land and I know the story and I know the catchwords, sustainability and all that sort of thing. And, you know, farmers get blamed a lot for the environment and the, the cow belches and all that stuff, but I have a hard time with it because, you know, since people have not been driving, have not been going out, have not been doing all these things because of COVID, they've realized that, you know, the, the emissions are going down. And so maybe, maybe people will realize that farmers and ranchers aren't all that bad. 
and and honestly, if there was ever a time to have that front and center, it's now. You're right. We haven't been driving as much. We haven't had as many planes in the air. And so we are seeing some some throttling back of some of the numbers. And now would be a great, I mean, this is when the iron is hot to strike and say, hey, look, sure, if you want to pay for us and we are voluntarily operating under these conditions, let's start a carbon credit, something or other, where a company can purchase um, credits on the marketplace that have been put on the marketplace by farmers who are doing practices that are good for the environment, good for climate, whether they can and have it so that that voluntary participation from the farmer, you can actually quantify what's being done. It's not just pie in the sky, oh, we'll just assign a value to it of X, Y, Z, right? It's real data and science-based driven solutions. Instead of, we don't know how much it's worth because we don't know exactly what you're doing out there, but we wanna know what you're doing out there. (laughs) So who knows, who knows? This may be the time where farmers can actually make some money and they don't have to do it. They don't have to change what they're actually doing. Yeah. Kind of nice for a change. (laughs) Some things, other things that are, that they were talking about mandatory livestock price reporting uh, under that reauthorization. They, uh, the Farm Bureau really wants to make sure, and they've heard from their membership from the grassroots that, uh, the, the members want the packing plants to buy their fair share of cattle off of the cash markets. Nobody's saying that there's anything wrong with grid-based marketing with, with that. It's just there needs to be regulatory regulations so that, um, according to Farm Bureau, you know, you're not just uh, buying cattle for pennies on the, on the hoof <laughs> and then making a bunch of money on the box beef, which we saw during COVID. We saw after the Holcomb fire. Um, there are some, some big changes ahead and it'll be interesting how that, that rolls out. You and I, we were talking about that too earlier. You guys raise cattle. This is something that's really important to you and you, you choose to market them on the cash market, right? Yeah. We normally just take them to the sale barn. The This year we actually sold our, our share back to the to the owner of our lease calves and you know we went off the prices that was at the sale barn that week so i mean it's it's influencing those sort of pricing decisions as far as those buyers looking for cattle to sell i mean ours sell at weaning so we have to take what we can get just the way our our financial dynamic is and in, in the family with the bank and the loans and all that sort of stuff so we have to take what we can get you know, and not a lot of people understand um, outside of agriculture, farmers are price takers. They aren't price makers. It's not like you go to the auction barn and say, all right, I got to get, you know, at least a, a thousand ahead, a thousand dollars ahead or else I, I'm just going to take them home. That's not yeah. how this works. That's not how any <laughs> of this works. That would be handy. I mean, that would save a lot of headache. <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, we need that price discovery in order to make sure that folks like you and your husband, you're getting a fair price um, set by the market on the open market for your for your livestock and for all your hard work going into raising that livestock. So. So, yeah, Farm Bureau has a lot on their plate, Kayleen, and uh, I think it'll be interesting to see how 
other organizations choose to to set their policy priorities in for the coming year, I think you're going to see a lot of opportunity for for agriculture to you know to have those conversations and and maybe open up some doors. Here's hoping. That's pie in the sky hopes. I've been around too long <laughs> to really be optimistic, but um, there's always hope, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I don't like change, so I I hope everything's for the better. <laughs> I gotta have faith. Well, now uh, speaking of change, you heard from our friends over at K State uh, some big changing news. Yeah, I had heard through the grapevine last week that they were going to cancel the K State rodeo, and it's usually in February. And I had I looked all over online, scoured and scoured the headlines, and couldn't find anything. So I uh, emailed the the rodeo coach there, and he sat down and gave me some answers to some questions about the rodeo and why they had to cancel it this year. And so we are canceling the rodeo first time in 64 years. Is that what I heard? Yeah. He said they've had the rodeo consecutively for 64 years. The The rodeo club at K-State actually started in 1946. So it's been around for a while. K-State, like a lot of schools in the central plains region, they have what they call a club and a team. Members of the club is everybody. Everybody that's involved in rodeo, those whether they compete or not. The team are those kids that pay their fees, that compete, that are sometimes scholarship, sometimes not. They are the ones gathering the points for their for their school. So hey. what does this mean for the team as they're going to try to compete for for buckles and, and honors? Well, the way the rodeo season is it follows a school year. So the college rodeos start in the fall, they take a hiatus over Christmas, and then they start back in the spring. So the 20, 2020, 2021 season, they didn't have any rodeos last fall. And there's usually about 10 rodeo, 10 or 11 rodeos in the season. So they pushed all the rodeos to the spring. So this means that the nine rodeos that are left are going to start in February. They'll go through March and April. They have nine rodeos and they're basically back to back to back to back. So. And how do, I mean, these are kids that if they're not scholarship kids, they're paying their entry fees out of their own pockets. They're paying for their, their animals out of their own pockets or traveling and help traveling fuel and everything on top of taking classes. So these are college athletes. And, uh, and, and we're having some trouble troubles. Yeah. Coach Wynn said that he's encouraged the kids that have decided to rodeo this, this year, that they only should take about 12 credits and take summer intercession classes so they can stay on track. They've also had to request travel exemption for travel out of state and have to agree to follow the, the university's COVID guidelines. I'm guessing other schools are probably having to do the same thing. So it's probably not something new for these kids and you know last year they didn't have the college national finals which is normally in June and uh coach Wynn he's he's hopeful they'll have it in 2021 so uh he's got his fingers crossed and I asked him what it's done to his roster and he said there's some kids that have opted out that are going to wait a year if they have enough eligibility and they're doing internships or other stuff that they need to get done in order to graduate so it's going to be <laughs> well a challenging and, year again. You know, these are, these are kids that 
kids, young adults that have chosen rodeo as, as it, it is their sport. It is their thing. And some of them, you know, like Tanner Bruner and, and like others have the ability to go pro and to go on to the national finals at some point in time in their lives. And, and it's just really tough to see, you know, high performing athletes like that have, you know, have this year of challenges. Well, and, and a lot of these, these students, you know, they, the rodeo pays for their school. I mean, they either have scholarships or they have sponsorships or they are able to win enough to pay for stuff. It's a pay to play game. So something that's challenging and they've got one more thing on top of them on top of being a college student. Well, kids, if young adults, if you're listening and we hope you are, um, good luck. We'll keep you in our thoughts. Cause, uh, I think you, you, just because this is a tough year, remember tough years make tough kids that can last tough things. Right. Yeah. And they only thought that canceling the road the rodeo a few years ago because of a snowstorm and a blizzard was a bad thing. So <laughs> I remember the controversy about that. So I tell and you, I was, I was on the rodeo team at K-State for a year. So I know what it takes to put on that rodeo. It's quite a production that the kids all are involved in from the marketing aspects of it to the actual pushing the calves through the chutes and sorting livestock and the pins and stuff. So it's quite a, quite a process. Well, and speaking as a spectator all throughout my college career of the Kansas State Rodeo and participant of after hours enjoyment <laughs> to celebrate the rodeo, I can't imagine um, the, the local economy is going to be okay with this because let me tell you, there's a, that rodeo weekend is, is quite a boom for Manhattan local businesses, particularly. Well, and he said, Coach Wynn said, they brings about 9,000 people. You know, there's about four, 400 contestants in the rodeo and they bring people with them. Their parents show up, their family shows up. So it's going to be an impact on, on Manhattan. Oh, well, here's hoping that, um, that those, ki- the, those young adults, those athletes will have better days ahead of them. So looking at better days or interesting days, you know, somebody once said, you know, the biggest blessing and a curse you can bestow on somebody is may you live in interesting times. And Kayleen, we live in interesting times. And as we record this today, uh, January 13th, the U.S. House of Representatives voted to impeach President Donald J. Trump for a second time for for last week's um, insurrection. I guess that's the the terminology that many of our colleagues in in media are calling it. I just, Kayleen, I, I, in, in, in all of my wildest dreams, I never thought four years ago we would be at this point. I always thought that there would be somebody with level, with, with cooler heads, leveler heads prevail. I believe that. And, um, I don't know how we got to this. And I just, I don't, I don't think it's all on one side either. I think there's unlevel heads on both sides. (laughs) Walking through Congress and, and visiting congressional offices and Senate offices and, and speaking to our elected representation is a hallmark of our democracy. Just the sheer fact that anybody can call 
a senator's, you know, Senator Moran's office and say, hey, I'd like to meet with the senator. And if he's got an opening on his schedule, then you get to meet with the senator if, it, you know, you, you set up an appointment. And you can go and go through the metal detectors and you can sit and talk to that senator or representative and have your voice heard. And just the fact that now I'm seeing shots of National Guard troops that have, are staying the night in the Capitol building because the safety of those elected officials is of a high concern right now. How, how did we get to this point as a nation? What the, what the heck? We're pretty divided right now, I believe. It hurts the heart. It makes me mad. It makes me mad, Kayleen. You know, I, I always thought that at the end of the day, no matter what letters were behind your name, I mean, I, I grew up watching Senator Bob Dole make some bipartisan moves that should never have had. I mean, he reached across the aisle so many times. I thought that's how it worked. <laughs> you know what? I watched K-State football my entire life. And up until the 90s, it was a given that we weren't going to win. Your team doesn't always win but the game. But you know what? The, it, life isn't just about one game. Life isn't about just one election. So you lost this election. There's another one in two years. Elections have consequences. You don't get out and vote. You don't get out and vote. I don't know, Kayleen. I don't, I just don't know. How do I don't know that anybody has the answers right now. I, I just don't see how we get over this, you know? And I, I write about agriculture has to figure out a way how to make some bipartisan coalitions because the numbers aren't on our side, Kayleen. The number of representatives from the, the, from the House of Representatives that are from farm districts or even have some sort of agriculture in their district is so incredibly small that there's no way that you could pass a farm bill just on those votes alone. And if we need a farm bill to have a safety net, or if we need to have a voice on climate change so we don't get you know, told what to do, but we have an active voice in what happens, gonna have to figure something out. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, those are the headlines for uh, the week of January 11th. I, weren't, weren't we, weren't, wasn't that the headline this week in 2020 <laughs> that we had an impeached president? I don't remember kind of start to feel like we need one of those signs that says this uh, workplace has been zero days without an incident. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, hey, folks, how are you doing out there? Drop us a line. Tell us at hpjtalk at hpj.com. Let us know. Or call us at 800-452-7171. And do us a favor and head over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Hey, everybody. Thanks for riding with us here on HPJ Talk.
This week's cover story is by contributor Amy Bickle. Shovel Ready, Soil Health U offers opportunities to learn. Inside, Jenny took a look at a recent report from USDA in her story, USDA releases report on diversity of American farms. Other stories came for our writers on topics ranging from Bear and their dicamba settlements and lawsuits to the runoff elections in Georgia and the Consolidated Appropriations Act. On our opinions and editorials page, editor Dave Bergmeier wrote about the importance of educational opportunities. And there was also a couple of letters to the editor about legislation priorities and the op optimism for the new year. And remember, if you've missed any of these stories, you can always find them online at www.hpj.com. Remember, if you've got a response to something you've read or heard, please write to us at journal at hpj.com or hpjtalk at hpj.com. We want to hear from you. Welcome back, everybody. This is Jennifer Latsky, and I am here on the podcast with my good friend, Stephen Mercer, who is the Vice President of Communications with the U.S. Wheat Associates. Steve, it's so great to see you and, and chat with you today. Great, Jenny. I appreciate it. It's good to see you, too. Well, now, we've got some exciting news out of U.S. Wheat. You all are, are getting in the movie-making business, I hear. <laughs> we've got a, a great movie coming out about um, wheat farmers. Tell us a little bit more about the project. Yeah, we, uh, we produced a, a, a film, 25-minute film called Wholesome, The Journey of U.S. Wheat. And as you know, our organization is focused on developing export markets for U.S. wheat. And uh, so uh, really... We've spent a lot of time trying to differentiate U.S. wheat based on its quality and the reliability of the supply of U.S. wheat. And what we've done with this film is basically talk to the people who uh, breed new varieties of wheat, the people who grow the wheat and care for it, uh, and the grain handlers who move the wheat uh, and keep its quality whole. Uh, from the farm all the way to the export elevator. And we've done this by letting them tell their own story. Um, we uh, have just finished uh, a year celebrating our 40th anniversary as U.S. Wheat, operating as U.S. Wheat Associates. And as part of that, we had done interviews and videoed, uh, uh, I think, seven different farm families around the country, uh, breeders and export elevators. And this film was a natural offshoot of that. Um, we haven't had the chance to be face-to-face -face with our customers uh, overseas as much as we would like, of course, with the pandemic. And so this film uh, really gives those people who they would see if they were here in the U.S. or if we were going to visit them and if our folks overseas were visiting customers, it really gives uh, them a voice uh, and reminds folks that there are dedicated, committed folks here in the United States who, who do care deeply for the quality of that wheat. And, and we think it'll make a difference with our folks overseas. 
So tell me about, I, I'm just so thrilled because obviously I, I have a wheat farmer's daughter's heart, <laughs> but um, I, have, I have a soft spot for gluten. What can I say, Steve? I have a, I <laughs> Me <love> too. <laughs> <laughs> well, so tell me a little bit about how unusual was it for you to work with the movie making process and and the team that you worked with and, and working with producers and getting them on camera. Um, that's got to that's gotta have some challenges and some fun stories there. Yeah, definitely. Um, we uh, we roamed the country, really. Um, but I have to say that uh, you know the Kansas plays a kind of a starring role in this whole this whole film. We started out the first farm family that we interviewed was uh, the Miller Shosky Kleeman family in Lakin, Kansas, and it was uh, summer of uh, 2019. Um, they were just about to get started with harvest and. You know, we spent a couple of days there and then uh, we went out to uh, farmers in Oklahoma, to uh, Montana, to North Dakota, to Oregon, to Washington, uh, and then an additional farmer in Kansas, uh, Justin Knopf in uh, uh, Gypsum, Kansas. And we also interviewed uh, folks at the Wheat Innovation Center in Manhattan. And uh, the team that we worked with is a uh, young, talented organization out of Manhattan called 502, uh, a strategic marketing agency. Uh, my colleague, Amanda Spoo, had worked with them in a previous position, uh, and she really thought that this would be a good fit, and we met with them, and I, I definitely agreed. A very talented group of people, upcoming uh, agency. We're really lucky to work with them. So Kansas played a starring role. Uh, there's no doubt about it, but uh, you know the other the other thing we were able to capture not only the story of the people but the the expanse and beauty of wheat production in the United States. I mean, you know, we sing about amber waves of grain for a reason in this country, and I think that uh, I think we were able to capture those those kinds of images, uh, a lot of drone footage, but you know, remarkable places to, to shoot, uh, the Palouse region of Eastern Washington, uh, the Columbia river basin, uh, the Mont uh, Montana, uh, in the foothills of the, the Rocky mountains. Uh, and, you know, gosh, I think there's this just wonderful shots, um, in Oklahoma and Kansas as well. So, um, it's a, it was just a, it was a thrill to do that. Uh, and uh, we were really pleased with the results. So now um, going forward, the, the movie premieres uh, tomorrow, which is um, the 12th of January. Yes. Where are people going to be able to see this? Yep. So if we uh, if you go to Facebook, if you have access to Facebook, uh, the simplest way is to just to search for U.S. Wheat Associates and our page will come up and uh, there'll be a a post right at the top of the page where you can click and it will send you a reminder about the premiere. But uh, that's, so that's the, that's the easiest way to do it. Um, it we do have a, a pretty simple uh, URL or address. It's a, it's a bit.ly address. It's bit.ly backslash capital wholesome capital premier, premier spelled with an E at the end. Uh, and uh, so that's a link that you can plug in. But I think if you search 
wholesome film, U.S. Wheat Associates, you'll probably find that link. So, uh, and then we will also uh, post it in our Vimeo page, uh, which can be accessed from our website, uswheat.org. Uh, and uh, we'll be sharing it in a lot of different ways, social media, of course, uh, as well. Well, hey, Steve, that sounds great. And I, I know that 2020 was kind of difficult not being able to bring in buyers um, to experience the harvest all up yeah. and down the, the wheat yeah. belt that we have. Um, what do you hear from our friends and, and um, purchasers outside of the, the country? Um, or wow. how, are they, how are they still looking at, at buying wheat? Um, what's, the, what's the current um, download there? Yeah. We're actually uh, having a pretty good year export-wise. Um, we've had uh, reasonable prices, export prices, especially uh, earlier in the marketing year. We're right about in the middle now. The year is, starts June 1, goes through uh, uh, end of May uh, next year, and uh, this year. And uh, we're actually having a very good year. So the hard red winter wheat this year was excellent quality. Um, it was uh, well-priced and, you know, you have to say one of the big changes was that China came into the market and bought hard red winter wheat out of the plains for the first time uh, in many, many years. Uh, and it was partly because of that price. You know, China can take a lot of different types of wheat. Um, they've taken a lot of soft red winter in the past, uh, but they looked at hard red winter and there's been a reverse uh, in price pretty much. I mean, Chicago has been above hard red winter for most of the marketing year. So they purchased uh, over a million metric tons of hard red winter wheat. Um, but of course, you know, our big market is Mexico for hard red winter and at least half of that moves there by rail. So a lot of wheat loaded in shuttle trains, uh, in Kansas and other states and moves right to Mexico. So uh, we're looking at a pretty good year overall, excellent demand for soft white out of the Pacific Northwest. Uh, Durham is selling well, our hard red spring is selling well. Uh, the uh, quality has been excellent this year. Soft red winter is a bit of a challenge, but you know, it had, uh, its price has been so high. We've really been forced out of the market in many areas, but but we're looking at niche markets there for cakes and cookies and crackers in certain markets. Um, and so, you know, our folks uh, have conducted almost 300 virtual meetings in the past uh, year and reached uh, almost 8,000 customers. Uh, so we pivoted to that. And I have to say, uh, we've had great support from the the USDA's Foreign Ag Service, our state wheat commissions, which provide funding and the, the FAS programs. Uh, I have to say also that the film itself was produced from the funding from the Agricultural Trade Promotion Program, uh, which was uh, instituted uh, during the trade uh, dispute you know, in, in, uh, to support uh, export market development um, while the uh, trade wars were going on. So it made a, made a big difference. I don't think we would have been able to produce this film without that funding. So it, it, it has made a difference. There's no doubt about it. And uh, of course the farm families were great 
Welcome Bus and uh, uh, you know our export uh, organizations also are our uh, grain handlers, very welcoming and very strong support. So, and they do a great job uh, keeping, you know, uh, the prices down and keeping things efficient. Okay. Well, hey, Steve, congratulations on the new movie. I, I love you. that there's good news for, for wheat farmers as far as our export markets, because we yes. know that, that yeah. um, half of all of our, our wheat goes overseas and, and feeds a hungry yeah. world. Um, we are the nation's pantry, as it were. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I suppose the yep. next time I see you, are you going to have a nice little director's cap and a and a director's <laughs> chair? Oh, I was the. I guess if I were anything, I was the producer oh. <laughs> rather than the director. Yeah, our friends at Five Hundred Two <laughs> did the directing, and uh, but yes, I I I've enjoyed working on that, and uh, my colleagues have as well. And uh, we uh, we do hope to do more. Um, we've We've actually purchased video equipment for our office uh, because we'd like to do more on video. As you know, uh, this is uh, an effective way to communicate more and more. And uh, so things like uh, sharing market analysis and other via video, uh, we think is the, the right way to go as we move more and more toward the social media platforms. Well, hey, Steve, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. And remember, folks, if you want to catch Wholesome, the movie, um, go and visit uswheat.org and yes. they'll be able to, uh, there's a, there, there should be a, a connection there, or you can check it out on Facebook. Um, just look up wholesome, the movie, right? Exactly. All righty. Well, thanks, Steve. We'll catch you on the trail later. My pleasure. Thanks, Jen. Soil Health U is going virtual this year and coming to a screen near you January 21st. Register today to hear from Jimmy Emmons, third-generation farmer and rancher and regional coordinator for the Southern Plains Region FPAC within USDA. You'll also hear from Chris Nichols, PhD, soil microbiologist, and founder and principal scientist of Chris Systems Education and Consultation, and Rick Clark, fifth-generation farmer and owner of Farm Green. Registration for the virtual Soil Health U is open now at SoilHealthU.net. That's SoilHealthU.net. High Plains Journal subscribers, check your current issue for a free registration code. The cost is just $25 for non-subscribers. Registration will be required to access the live events and the recordings of the presentations, as well as brand new breakout idea exchange sessions. Watch SoilHealthU.net for updated programming and registration notes. Our virtual Soil Health U is sponsored by High Plains Journal, Prairie Food, and Exapta Solutions. Your grain market prices from Dodd City's Pride Ag Resources on January 5th. Corn was up at $5.20. Wheat was up at $5.79. Milo was up at $6.22. And soybeans were up at $12.70. If you'd like to have crop or livestock targeted news emailed directly to you, sign up for our HPJ Direct email newsletters on our website, www.hpj.com slash signup. Simply select the topics that interest you and you'll receive updates on them directly to your email. Be sure to watch for our farm storage and building issue of High Plains Journal in your mailboxes January 18th with a story, 
from Jennifer Thur. And look for additional content online anytime at www.hpj.com. Remember, you can subscribe for free to this podcast at hpj.com podcast. You can also find us on iTunes, Google Play, and wherever you download podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at HPJ Talk for news and commentary throughout the week. And you can always drop us a line at our email, hpjtalk at hpj.com. Thanks again for riding along with us, folks, as we bring ag news and commentary to you. And remember, as Dodge City's favorite lawman, Wyatt Earp, once said, fast is fine, but accuracy is everything. We'll see you on the trail. Dirt road in a gooseneck, saddle up with me. Dry land in God's country, crops far as I can see. The headlights on both ends.